Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. Hi folks, this is the Gamers with Glasses show, and I'm Christian Haynes, one of the editors of the website GamersWithGlasses.com. Gamers with Glasses is a gathering place for fans, scholars, artists, and developers who like to play and think about games. And today I'm happy to be joined by Roger Whitson. Hey, yo. Nate Schmidt. Hello, hello. And Jason Michael. Hello. So this week, our special topic is actually a second part of our discussion regarding mental health and video games. Stick around to hear us talk about the way games represent things like psychosis, how they deal with representing mental illness, and whether or not they handle that very well. Uh, But before we do that, we're going to start the way we always start, which is with the games we're playing. And tonight, why don't we go ahead and start with Roger. Yay. Okay, so I'm playing this new game, Blue Fire, which is an indie game. Um, and a lot of people have characterized it as uh, Hollow Knight in 3D. So I know I know Nate would love, would love this game. I would love the idea of it and then die a bunch of times and give up. It, <laughs> but, but yes, it sounds awesome. It, uh, I'm only a little bit into it. I might end up giving up. I don't know. I, it's, uh, it's, a lot of it is platforming. A lot of platforming. And really difficult platforming. So you're this just you're just like little um, guy running around with swords, and uh, most of the time you're in a castle. Um, and they there's a lot of really interesting fighting. The thing that's really fascinating about this game is that the character isn't very um, he he's kind of uh, weak in terms of in terms of how like he gets batted around pretty easily. So you have a shield. But it's, it's, it's kind of like a force field that you have to put up. So you can do parries with this force field. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. Um, but, uh, you know, anything that hits you kind of knocks you away pretty far, which is very different, I think, um, just in terms of um, weight than a game like Dark Souls, where everything is a lot, a lot heavier, like you feel a lot heavier. In this game, it's very light, and you're encouraged... Um, increasingly as the game goes on to, to, to do a lot of jumps and a lot of flips and to do aerial acrobatics um, as sort of a major part of, of, uh, of combat. And so there's that part of the game. And then there are these parts that I've noticed um, that I've been in called where you go to the void. It's called the void. And it's like this weird kind of platforming obstacle course. Um, and I'm on the second one of these I've already screamed a lot because I keep falling off of this rotating platform. I don't know. I get into these situations 
um, where I start really becoming philosophical about this stuff, where it's like, it's like, why does this place exist? Who built it? And who would build it? Like, Never ask that point? during a platformer while playing a platform <laughs> game, Roger. Well, <laughs> it is kind of, film. so it reminds me like the White Palace. I remember this very much about the White Palace, which is this famously difficult level. Um, it's sort of an homage to Super Meat Boy in the middle of Hollow Knight. And it's this palace and like, like Super Meat Boy has all these crazy rotating, uh, uh, saw blades everywhere and you're like who would make a castle with these huge rotating saw blades everywhere but you know i just go with it um but i'm enjoying the game mostly it's definitely a game that requires a lot of focus so i think that might be something that may not it may make it so it's more difficult for me to continue but it's you know 20 bucks uh on uh i'm playing on a playstation 4 so it's pretty cheap in terms of in terms of uh gameplay value and i'm enjoying it quite a bit so if you're really into like you know kind of dark soulsy difficult platforming sword play uh fun uh blue fire is pretty great do you feel like in general the souls like mechanics uh and design ethos translates well to platform games i mean we're seeing some of these right and I think Dark Souls is a game about movement, but it's very much not a platforming game. And as soon as you add the jump in, there's a whole different sort of quality that it gets introduced, a kind of acrobatic quality, and it, it it adds something to it. And I'm just wondering how you feel about whether or not that works in games like Hollow Knight, which obviously people love, um, Blue Fire. There's a handful of others, too, but I'm not thinking of at the moment. It's honestly funny because, you know, the closest one, obviously, this isn't quite a platformer, but Sekiro has a lot of a lot of jumping. You have a grapple hook that you shoot everywhere and you're constantly trying to get the drop on enemy on enemies. You can do uh, strikes from above, all this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny after after playing a game like Sekiro and going back to Dark Souls, um, followers of Gamers with Glasses know that Nate and I and Christian a little bit are venturing into the Dark Souls thing again. It's it's hard to go back to that game for me in a way um, because some things seem so ridiculous. It seems the jump mechanic. There there are moments where you fall into like a pit maybe, and you could really get out of the pit in reality. Right. Like like the step is just a little bit above your your waist or something. You could really do that, but you can't because of the way that Dark Souls is set up. And and like back in the day, I was like, whatever about it. But now that I've played Sekiro, playing games like Hollow Knight and now Blue Fire, um, it, it does, I think, add an interesting element to the uh, the Dark Souls kind of kind of mashup where you uh, are sort of look doing more, more stuff in 3D, kind of. It's more 3D-like. You have to consider uh, angles. You have to, like in this, in this game, for instance, you know, uh, because they're uh, very much encouraging you to, to, to attack things from the top, I realize there's this one enemy that gets me every time. And now I've realized that if I attack him constantly without falling to the ground, then I, I totally take him out really easily. But... If I try to go straight on to him, he will wipe me out. 
Like, and so, um, it's just, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting variation. And I think it, it also, uh, I think challenges the, the, the souls like franchise to, you know, not rely on those sort of older, sort of heavier models. I mean, I think you can still have that, but you have to have some kind of more 3D oriented kind of, kind of, uh, game, I think. I watched a really cool video earlier this week, and we're not going to turn this into the Dark Souls corner. I'm not going to say the words Dark Souls again. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do um, it. (laughs) I watched a really cool video earlier this week talking about Blighttown um, and explaining how that's a level where you, like, physically don't belong. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's not just this reminder, it's, it's this extra reminder that this world is, like, the physics of this world are not built for the character that, and the things that your character is able to do, because it does, it, it takes what's been mostly this horizontal experience and just suddenly sends it ver- 90 degrees, right? Just suddenly makes everything vertical um, in, in really confusing ways. I actually ended up beating that level in a very strange and roundabout way. I never found the bonfire, actually. It killed <laughs> Quillag anyway. <laughs> I never even found it. But um, but I really enjoyed, sort of related to Christian's question, I am I am enjoy the idea of maybe taking that world and tweaking it a little bit so that you are the kind of character who does belong there. Right. But all of these other mechanics remain similar or or the same right. and that's think, kind of a fun juxtaposition you definitely get that i think in blue fire and in hollow knight where you have those types of things happening and and in sekiro like there's a lot that opens up with that game that um you can't you just can't do in in dark souls or demon souls so excellent yeah no it's always cool to see these kind of little indie platformers break out. It seems like a place where a lot of indie devs have managed to kind of just carve out their own niche and, you know, make a living, frankly. Uh, Jason, you've got some cool games on the list. Why don't you uh, let us know about some of them? Sure. So I have been putting more hours into playing Red Dead Online, which I can't still have not sold that that's a good thing, but it's certainly interesting. The uh, I've encountered more than my, well, not not more than my, but you know, a, a decent number of kind of griefers and jerks. But for the most part, it's it's got a, a certain uh, sort of open, almost a role playing game sense to it that is really interesting. And, and I think that's kind of what's keeping me coming back to it is that you can you, you choose a class or, or classes that you can start doing missions for but it sort of begins to like define your character. And like, if you do the, the naturalist class, for example, so if you're out, um, you know, either, either taking peacefully tranquilizing animals to take samples from them, or if you're a hunter and taking their pelts, then like you can begin to wear the clothes, you know, you can take animal skins and wear their clothes. And so there's a, a certain amount of like kind of just cosmetic character development, but also just, the experience you have as you play the game is kind of an interesting bit of character development too. And I think it would, I think it would be, it would probably be more fun if I had a group of people to play it with regularly. And we, you know, kind of were 
<laughs> riding around together on horses as opposed to how I play now, which is pretty pretty much lone wolf. But it's it's interesting. There's it, it's it's interesting enough to justify if you haven't um, if you haven't purchased Red Dead Two, you can buy the standalone online game. I think for like five dollars. And that's really all you need to to get into it, which is a pretty decent deal. So yeah, I mean it's it's um it's interesting enough to keep me coming back. Like I said, I'm not entirely sold that I'm having a good time yet, but um I'll I'll keep playing and then see in maybe ten hours more and I'll, I'll have made up my mind. Jason, have you looked into any of those like super like those hyper realistic playthrough like groups who are playing red? Like there was something about cows. Like uh, last week, there was something where like they were trying to do a real cow handoff and they actually had player characters being the cows who would like wander away. Like there are these people who are who are trying to sort of almost hack the game to to make it as hyper realistic as possible. Is that interesting to you at all? Or what what kinds of other kinds of stuff have you enjoyed about about playing it? I, I really like that stuff. I love when people kind of take what's there and sort of do you know more gonzo stuff with it uh, but that's true of pretty much any game like you know push yeah, yeah. push the game boundaries and see what you can come up with i think that's that's really interesting to see what what players will do especially i think there was a there was an in-game um protest one <laughs> one of those a while ago because you know rockstar had kind of i think neglected red dead online quite a while and players across all the different servers dressed their characters as clowns and they're just running around <laughs> being clowns <laughs> so you know it's it's stuff like that that's kind of um it, it actually reminds me of uh i think it was ultima online like this is 20 some years ago now where they were players got together to protest something and it basically ended up all gathering in one spot and um Something bad happened, but I can't. <laughs> my my game history is sort of uh, has sort of fled. I they may have killed Lord British. Now that I think about they it, tried. I'm they tried. I'm trying to remember yeah. this. So one of the problems was that Ultima Online initially had a very dense ecological s- system, uh, which made resource depletion a very regular occurrence, and so it was producing like scarcity because it was one of these games where if like too many rabbits bred in like place X, Y, or Z, it would deplete certain kinds of like herbia, you know, like herbs or plants that were growing there. And if the plants weren't there, then you couldn't make like, you couldn't craft X, Y, or Z. And so, (laughs) yeah, I I remember both when this happened and I remember like reading about it recently. It's one of those bits of video game history that's sort of beginning to get passed into lore, you know, where it's like, I can tell the story, sort of, but it's not quite the right version. So, yeah. Yeah, I might have been mixing in pieces of uh, the television show Halt and Catch Fire there, Uh, (laughs) you know, from the season where they have like the BBS that they're running games on. Uh, But uh, yeah, I mean, Red Dead Online is a funny thing. It feels like it's really been kind of in the shadow of Grand Theft Auto, you know, and that online service in particular. And I remember when Red Dead 2 came out, which is a game that I, I I love but almost never want to replay. I'm not sure if I ever will. I I enjoyed the time I spent playing it immensely. But what I remember you... when they were talking about releasing the online and they were going to do the same thing as they did with Grand Theft, which is that they were going to release it like six months later. 
maybe it was even just three months later, and they did, but it never felt like they have pushed it all that hard. And I don't know if that's just because the revenues for Grand Theft Auto online are just so great that they just were never incentivized to. I don't know. Yeah. I, I The players have noticed too, and, and I think there's kind of a, you know, if you compare the two, there's been way less content released for Red Dead Online, which is kind of too bad, but... I mean, it's it's a beautiful game. It's it's a you know the world is enormous and cool and can feel kind of empty sometimes. And you know, I um, I I was a huge fan of the first one. I played it through ten times probably. But I, I I've actually full disclosure never even finished the single player Red Dead Two. So it's I a long game. It. it is. It is, and it just it's it <clears throat> la- it lacked a little something that. Um, it didn't quite feel like a Western in the same way the first one did. And I mm. don't know quite, I, I couldn't tell you quite why. All right. Um, I mean, for one, just really quickly, it wasn't in the West. So definitely had that going against it. So uh, that is, <laughs> that is true. It was set more in the South and then like Appalachia. So yeah, at least in the first part. of the game. Yeah. The geography of that game itself is just kind of funny. There's a moment in Red Dead 2. I think we're past where spoilers are. You know, really sort of outlaw. The statute of limitations. Yeah, I think we're past that. But there's a moment where you get to burn down a slaveholding plantation, and which is a brilliant moment, a lot of fun, and and you know, um, to use a sort of overused term, problematic, uh, but still very cathartic. Uh, but it sort of feels like the game like introduces the South just so they could have that scene, which I have no problem with. But there's a moment where I'm just like, how far did I just travel? Because this feels like way closer than it should be. You know, I feel like I went from like Ohio, like Southern Ohio to somehow like Eastern Georgia or something. I am going to rattle off a bunch of games that I've played just a little bit of and then talk about a couple that I'm playing a little bit more concertedly. Uh... So the game I really want to nod to that I think is worth folks playing and picking up uh, is a game made by a single person called, I want to say it's pronounced Olia. Uh, I think the person's Norwegian, but living in Japan, if I'm remembering correctly. The dev, uh, it's a surprisingly good game with very stark, simple, but beautiful aesthetics. Uh kind of 8-bit aesthetics, very nice handling. And the key mechanic is you have a harpoon that you launch into enemies, press a button, you sort of teleport to it, and it has all kinds of ways that mechanic can be modified. But it just handles like a charm. And uh, it's short from what I understand. I've played maybe half of it, and it's only probably like five hours long. Uh, But it's a great little platformer, maybe sort of, I, I've got to look more into it, but it seems like there's some weird orientalism about it, some sort of like, check out my exotic location. And from what I understand, the developer is introducing an autobiographical narrative about how he met uh, his partner, uh, you know, moving to the East, as it were. So there's a little bit of weirdness to it, but what I've played, I've really enjoyed and it's been really interesting and compelling. Uh, I'm replaying Control, because it re-released, which I won't talk about because we're going to do a spoiler cast on it, I think. Uh, I'm playing some Paper Mario uh, Origami King because I'm writing on Mario. Uh, It's a very charming game with lots of great jokes uh, and okay puzzle combat that's in a ring that I won't get into. 
I will say the one thing that's killing the game for me is the speed at which the text appears on the screen. I may have to stop playing it simply because I cannot stand reading that slowly um, because it goes letter by letter. All right. So the games I actually want to talk about. Uh, I'm playing the medium on Game Pass. It's Bloober's new game. They made The Observer, uh, I think maybe the only game uh, starring Rutger Hauer before he died. But uh, the medium is a horror game, sort of reminiscent of Silent Hill, and I know they got Silent Hill's composer to do music for it. Though I have to admit, the music's not anything all that compelling from my perspective. Uh, But the selling point of this game is that there is, you're a medium, so somebody who speaks with the dead, who communicates with the dead, and you are capable of sort of entering this otherworldly realm in which the dead have this kind of spectral, this spectral physical sort of manifestation. Uh, and you split back and forth between these two realms. And then sometimes uh, you are in both realms at once. And so it's kind of a split screen where the top or the right of your screen is the other world. And then the lower part or left part of your screen is uh, the quote-unquote real world or I suppose the non-haunted realm and it does pretty interesting things kind of just puzzle mechanics where you're trying to get past a door that's blocked so you go to the other realm and you can have this out-of-body experience and move around it is a game like a lot of horror games that's very much about its setting and very much about exploring a haunted setting and which means it's of course a game about history uh I guess I could reference Frederick Jameson's essay on The Shining, but that's where I'll leave that. Uh, but what's interesting to me about this game that I don't, I haven't seen anybody write about it, is it's a game that's reckoning with Poland's history with socialism and communism. And so where it's set is actually like a worker vacation lodge. So like a communist party run workers like vacation lodge. Uh, <laughs> and so there's these really interesting moments that are addressed to comrade. Um, and it's really weird to me that no reviewers have talked about this. Um, and maybe because, you know, it's communism and that's just so passe, I guess. Uh, the second world, who even knows what that is anymore. Uh, but it's interesting to me and I don't know what to do with it except that I'm imagining some kind of like Marxist rewrite of this where, you know, ghosts of the world unite to sort of revolt against their chains uh, in the afterlife, um, <laughs> which I don't think is the direction it's going, unfortunately. Spectres of Marx. It's it really is. Of Marx. <laughs> A book I can't stand, I'll just say. Um <laughs> Which is another side point. Uh, Derrida that was a lot of things, but not a good Marxist. You're, you're uh, really laying out the academic footnotes today. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is my bad. My I kind of did that one. I, no, I, I led Christian into that trap a little bit. Yeah, I think you did. I'm not totally sorry. I'm a little sorry. Yeah, but it, it's a game that I think is worth playing, especially if you have Xbox Game Pass. I will say, I think it's their only game that's only available in the most recent generation. So I'm playing it on a Series X. Uh, you know, I plays well. I can see the argument for why it needed to be on a new console generation because of some of what they're doing with the split screen. On the other hand, I 
think a lot of people are probably perfectly fine just going back and replaying Silent Hill or Silent Hill 2 or 3 uh, and we'll get some of the same things. I do, I'll talk about the game again once I've finished it. Uh, I've heard sort of murmurs that I've tried to avoid hearing too much, but I've heard some murmurs that it has some very poor representations of people that have survived traumatic events that becomes more obvious towards the end of the narrative. And so maybe I'll port back on that. But what I've played so far, uh, I've enjoyed, even if I'm not, you know, sort of blown out of the water. Um, And then the last thing I'll talk about, uh, and this is something I would actually recommend anybody sort of pick up if they have, I think, like 10 bucks, 15 bucks, uh, is the 10MG collection available on uh, HIO. Uh, and Steam. Uh, I think I picked it up on Steam for some reason. Uh, It's inexpensive. It's 10 games. The games are supposed to take about 10 minutes each. Uh, Each one experiments with a handful of different mechanics. Uh, I'll just talk about a few of the ones I've played very briefly. So uh, probably my favorite so far is a game called Cover Me and Leave. So again, these are all part of the 10MG or 10-minute games collection. So it's all 10MG colon in the title. And Cover Me and Leaves is a game that the developer retrospectively called their sort of trans coming out game. Um, it's a game dealing with gender nonconformity and thinking about what it means to be part of a small town and encountering violence. And I will just say there's moments that uh, I think if you're prone to sort of being triggered by, uh, I guess, hints of uh, assault uh, are worth just noting. Uh, But it's essentially a kind of visual novel, very linear, with a haunting art style that's simultaneously minimalistic and scratchy, but quite beautiful. Uh, and it is just a story about somebody needing to leave a small town that they both can't manage to belong to or belong too much to and can't take belonging to. And I think it's, it's more than worth the 10 minutes. Uh, and I'd love to see that developer get some more attention for that game. Um, the other game I'll call attention to of the 10 games is called Always Down, uh, which is essentially your instruction for the game. Always go down. It's a platformer uh, with no real consequences for dying. You just kind of restart. It's very nicely checkpointed, seems to be procedurally generated, uh, but very well done. And you just keep going down and you deal with little obstacles and little checkpoints and keys. And there's some tilting of the screen that's interesting uh, and some mechanical modification in terms of how you move. But it's really all about the music. And the music is a piece of classical music that I don't recognize because I'm not that well-versed in classical music. But it just keeps getting more and more intense the further you go down, which is why it compelled me to just keep playing it and playing it. Uh, I did a few run-throughs. And it is matched up to the level at which you're at, which you see like how many meters you have to go down. Uh, 
And it just keeps amping up and amping up and amping up to this wonderful crescendo and then denouement. And when you hit the denouement, it just spits you back up to the top where it's like, is a town where people are like, where'd you go? <laughs> and then when you're starting the game, they're like, where are you going? And it's sort of the classical like hero leaving town quest structure, but with no need for actual narrative. So I've played some of the other games. Some of them are homages to arcade games. Some of them deal with what it's like to have experienced a stroke. Uh, some of them, you know, tell a campfire horror story uh, with branching narrative. So there's a lot of interesting things going on. But I think the real interesting thing to me is that these are 10-minute games. And as somebody who's a parent and who's just feeling really overworked lately and, like, I don't have a ton of time for playing games more than half an hour at a time, it's nice to have a complete experience in 10 minutes. So that's the, my scattershot gameplay approach because I'm feeling very sort of helter-skelter and all over the place these days. Uh, and so last but not least, Nate, what weird thing do you have for us this week? <laughs> Since that is essentially your role in the podcast. That is my job. That is my job. So, okay. This week what I have for you is We Know the Devil, um, which is a little bit... Oh. See, honestly, this is a game that... I'm not totally sure how to talk about because if you are listening and you're really into visual novels, you already know this game, probably. I mean, no shame if you don't, but like this this game, it came out, I want to say in 2015. Um, so it's, it's relatively older as far as these kinds of things go. And, um, you know, sort of out of the, all the visual novels, really these really cool things that, that sort of come out um, it made a splash and got some attention and, and has has still a fairly dedicated following. I was sort of poking around today and there's still like new fan art and YouTube animations and stuff being made of, of different parts of the story, um, which is always cool to see. So you either already know this game because you're individual novels or you're not individual novels at all and you haven't played it. And then if you play it, you're going to get a weird sense of what visual novels are because the kinds of decisions that you make are different, I think, from some of the ways that you can normally direct the course of a story in a visual novel. So um, the premise is that you sort of are have, have kind of a, a bird's eye view into the story of these three queer teenagers at church camp. But really quickly, I mean, it's not a spoiler to say that it, you really quickly realize um, in, a, in an almost Lynchian way, like David Lynch, this is not a normal church camp. Like there are, there are sirens sort of around the perimeter of the camp that go off at regular intervals that you have to go check and make sure that they're working okay. Um, the backgrounds, the characters are drawn in really, really cool ways, but then the backgrounds that the characters overlay um, are all 35 millimeter, shot on 35 millimeter film, um, that they're, they're pictures. 
Um, and so there's this kind of ominous sense of like, you know, the way it looks, right? When you have a flash on a 35 millimeter camera in, in a dark forest, right? When you would develop that, you'd get this sort of center, um, almost like you were holding a flashlight, right? So there's this sort of creepy extra atmosphere to it. And there's a lot of really cool stuff that I don't want to give away because um, the world building all happens in the narrative. But what basically comes out of it is that there's, this is a church camp where God and the devil are very real entities who you can speak to. God's on the radio. He's on a specific radio channel and you can tune to it and he'll talk to you. He's actually always already talking because he's expecting that everyone is always listening to everything he has to say. Um, and then, and, and, or sometimes maybe the devil will talk to you, but anyway, the decisions that you make over the course of the story that change the way it goes and the ending you get. So you have three characters and periodically something will need to be done and you have to pick who gets left out. You have to decide who doesn't get to come. And, and, or who gets left behind, or who gets ignored or not listened to. Um, and you, you can only pick two characters at each branching point of the story. And so the decisions you make about who gets left out are related to, by the end of the story, um, who becomes the devil. And by the end of the story, someone is always going to be the devil. And the way that they become the devil is often related to the ways that you have marginalized them throughout the game. So it's a very Whoa. interesting way that kind of, it, 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 it sucks you in and makes you question every sort of little decision that you, that you make over the course of the story as these characters, I just, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to give too much away. All I can say is that the devil, like with all my other favorite stuff is not an unsympathetic character here. And that's what makes it really interesting is that the character who becomes the devil, it always happens in a really compelling way. And um, the last thing I'll say about it that I just think is, is a nice little thing to dangle for for people who might try it out is there there is a fourth ending that's sort of the the good ending which you can trigger depending on different decisions you make in the story um where you get to experience for each of the characters how sympathy with the devil might be the, what they need might actually be the the thing they need um, to kind of help them survive this weird setting that they've been put in. So it's 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 compelling. I mean, it's a cool story. It's it, and it makes you uh, it it implicates you in difficult decisions and sometimes get, offers you a way out and sometimes doesn't. Um, and it's six dollars and sixty six cents. On, uh, <laughs> on, on HBO, so that's that's pretty great too. That's called um, practicing what you preach. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, it's one of those stories. I mean, 
um, that I definitely welcome people to read about, uh, although it's hard to read about it without getting spoilers. But there's there have been a lot of really cool stories that I've read from sort of as I've been researching the game. Really cool stories I've read, especially focusing on the game's one uh, trans character and from folks from within the trans community saying like, watching this character sort of move through the arc that the character moves through made a lot of different ways of thinking about being in the world possible. And um, it's cool. It's cool. It's well worth looking into. Um, and then I'm not really going to talk about it. I'm just going to say I'm working on a D&D homebrew and it's going to be awesome. I'm using 5e. I don't love the backgrounds in 5e. I think that's kind of pointless and people can come up with their own, but it's going to be really cool and I'm having a blast with it. Any particular theme or angle you're uh, driving? I want to do um, what if dungeon crawling was cool? Like I, I want to do something that take actually takes place almost entirely. It not in a dungeon, like in a like oh you're in the castle and now you're in the dungeon. But like I, I want to do like a labyrinthine kind of tricky trap dungeon kind of thing and see if I can do that in a way that will also have um, compelling NPCs and cool character interaction. So it's kind of a high bar to set for a first attempt, but we'll see how it goes. Awesome. That sounds great. Yeah, we need to get more tabletop stuff going on with the site, I think, and just maybe get some... We do. We got to play Morkborg. I'm telling you. I, I'm yeah, going no, to we're going to do it. Morkborg for you. We're going to do that. I really <laughs> want to run a couple Tales from the Loop sessions, yeah. uh, which I've been you know, reading hmm. those illustrated. If I were going to do have a you, non-game recommendation. Have you watched the, yeah, have you watched the movie or the show? Yeah, I watched a, was I think it was an Amazon Prime TV show. Yeah. And then I have the illustrated, I don't know what to call them. They're not graphic novels. They're art books that actually have kind of a narrative that runs through them. And then they made a pretty cool role-playing game out of it, which I've read the source books but haven't had a chance to actually uh, play a session yet. By the way, Jason, you you were doing something with 5e too, weren't you? Yeah, I was going to ask you what what I want to hear what you think. And I also want to know if you have tips for me or or just but like bugbears about DMs that that you think I should know. Oh, um, get it, bugbears. Yeah, (laughs) it was bad. (laughs) No, it's good. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, like I mean, it's so my. My tip, I guess, would be like plan and, you know, especially if you're basically designing a dungeon, you know, um, like plan as much as you can, but be ready to um, be ready to keep them on rails more than you think you're going to have to. Um, And like, and I think there's kind of a subtle art of um, giving them free will, giving the players free will and, but also sort of like, you know, oh, they think they're going to do something wacky, but actually, you know, that's that's what you kind of expected them to do. And I don't know if you're how, how well you know your group that you're going to run for. Yeah, I mean, they're all friends. They're all close okay. friends. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I have the, I have the privilege of running for people who I can write things specifically for them and I know how they play. So like <laughs> keeping them on the rails that you sort of need to keep them on is like, 
um, is easier than I think if you were just playing with you know random folks or whatever. But like for for especially for a dungeon, it, it's it's going to take planning and design to get everything down. And so you know, I mean, and naturally the environment is going to give you rails to keep them on anyway because they're not going to be like, well, we're going to just drill through the wall and go find you know <laughs> see what's right. see what's down in the mantle of the planet. Right, right. You know? like, Although or one of my one of my player characters did pick a background today that comes with thieves tools. And I was like, crap, so much, so many of these puzzles are about locked doors. <laughs> like we're going to have to figure out how that lock pick goes. That magic locks, magic locks. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be some magic locks, but yeah, yeah no, that, that's cool. I've, it's, it's really, it's really been satisfying and fulfilling. And I have, I have had the graph paper going though. I've had the graph paper going. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to know, I'm going to know every inch of this place. That's cool. Are you using like roll 20 or? Um, I hope to. Yeah, I hope to. I've had really good and really bad experiences with roll 20 over during the pandemic. Um, yes. And uh, I hope this is what a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also what I want. Okay. I, I, we should do a D and D cast. Let's put a note in this people like the D and D GWG people. We should totally do a D and D cast. I am trying to um, make my uh, own soundtrack for the various parts of the mm-hmm. dungeon. Um, and that's what I really want to use Roll24 is the ability yeah. to play uh, background music that everyone has to listen to, whether they want to or not. <laughs> yeah, that actually, it's so I tried that actually for the last game I ran on Roll20. We had to default over to using. Um, well, we were using Google Hangouts at one point, back when that was still a thing. But like, yeah. uh, you may have better luck actually on Discord. I don't know. Mm. I couldn't get their Roll Twenties music to work. Like the mix was just, I couldn't mix it. It was either way too loud or way too quiet. So, if you can get it to work, awesome. I think yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, and I think like anything else, Roll Twenty, you have to just invest a bunch of time getting it set up, right? Yeah. And and sometimes you know, money, which sucks. I'm not going to pay. Yeah. For it. At least not now. I'm not going to pay. But yeah, w- what we're probably going to do is um, do all of our voice stuff on Discord, mm-hmm. so that the only audio that's coming out of Roll Twenty is the music, and hopefully it'll fix the But we'll see. Nice. We'll see yeah. how that goes. Anyway, yeah, we'll we'll we we need it. We'll talk. We'll talk more. We'll put a D and D cast together, and uh, everybody who's listening now who wants to hear a bunch more of this can yes. do that. And everybody who's listening now who's like, when are they gonna? I thought they were gonna do something else. <laughs> doesn't have doesn't have to hear us talk about the finer points of crafting magic items. But if that's a phrase that captures your interest, let, let's see if we can put that together sometime soon. I'm totally in. Yeah. So tabletop, I mean, that gives us a pretty good segue. And that part of what we want to talk about uh, in the second part of our podcast today and the second part of our uh, mental health uh, special topic uh, are insanity mechanics in tabletop games, especially Call of Cthulhu games, Lovecraftian games, and the like, which is a topic that you uh, brought up, Jason. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what drew your attention to it, why you wanted to talk about it, what you think the significance is? Sure. Um, there's Well, there's been a conversation. I'm, I'm pretty active in tabletop Twitter, and there's been conversations about the use of sanity mechanics in games like Call of Cthulhu f- for a while now. And 
what those represent and whether, you know, how ableist it is and, and everything else. And, you know, it's, it's always kind of been something that has, it's, it's interesting to me as a person with a mental disorder, I've, uh, you know, had suffered from bipolar uh, symptoms for um, 25 years, I suppose, if I, you know, if I really look at the history of it, um, you know, but for the, definitely for the majority of my adult life and, you know, and as a player and as a, as a writer and a slash designer, you know, it's always kind of interesting to look at these conversations where, where people are, are sort of thinking about things. And, you know, at first I was like, I, I also, full, you know, full disclosure, a lot of my gaming over the last five to six years has been Call of Cthulhu and, and Delta Green, which is sort of a, mo a modern day Call of Cthulhu variant. And, I was a little like, oh, wait a minute, that's not ableist. Sam, it's just part of the game. It's just baked in. And the more, but the more I thought about it and the more I kind of read up and, and sort of read people's opinions, I was like, you know, actually, this is kind of a problem. <laughs> like this is, this is an issue. And, and, you know, even just, you can start at the language, the notion of like sanity versus insanity, which, um, you know, we, we don't, we as a society don't even use anymore unless you're talking about like legal definitions of, um, you know, certain legal definitions of, of people's mental states. Um, but in, but in Lovecraft's time, you know, in the, in the twenties and thirties, they, they use terms like, you know, whether a person was sane or insane, but, you know, those things were closely related to eugenics and, you know, which is yet another uh, gasoline can on the fire, uh, the raging dumpster fire of Lovecraft's like awful views, um, you know, but, you know, but I, but I think like in the same way that um, people, you know, there's been a lot of work from um, writers and designers of color to try to find meaningful things within Lovecraft and the Lovecraft mythos for, you know, like that aren't racist or to try to extract things from that and be like, okay, this is, this is interesting, even though the rest of Lovecraft is, you know, racist trash, then, um, and, and I think, you know, sort of in the same way, if you look at what, you know, what Call of Cthulhu is trying to mechanically represent, um, you know, and, it's it's sort it is essentially mental trauma, and your and the and your, a person's response to mental trauma. And I think Call of Cthulhu does it fairly poorly, but there's at least the kernel of something there that might be interesting enough to to save, which is kind of cool. Um, and I'll I, I um, love you know and Lovecraft sort of used like he had this whole thing where if you read you know the the Necronomicon or you see some you know horror from beyond the you know, beyond time and space, then like your mind just couldn't handle it and you would go insane. And, um, you know, which is what he was talking about was trauma response, you know, I, I and, you know, response to a situation where your mind is kind of like, what just happened? And the game tries to represent that, um, you know, but you, you basically lose hit points. Sanity points are, are more or less like a secondary hit point system. And then when you reach a certain amount, then you, you basically instantly develop a mental disorder, which I'm pretty confident in saying that's not how it works. But uh, you know, I'm also <laughs> that's yes. Yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm really? not a, I'm not a mental health professional. Just but. yeah, but I'm pretty sure, based on personal experience, that's not quite how it works. 
else. But, you know, trauma can make existing, pre-existing mental, um, mental disorders worse or can bring them back. Um, and so I, that's kind of the, the, I feel like the, the conversation that is where the, where the community sort of should be going is like, okay, is there something interesting there? I think maybe there is, um, you know, but how do we, how do we represent trauma and how the mind handles trauma versus like, okay, you've lost some hit points and now you have, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's kind of, that's my, that's my initial thoughts on the subject, but I love, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, you know, I wonder, I had sort of, I was, I don't know how to really phrase this. Um, but I wonder if some of that is based on a kind of, well, two things, not only how we imagine insanity and trauma and, uh, mental illness and all of these things, uh, and, and our cultural sort of, sort of, uh, understanding of that both, you know, historically and now, um, but then also like how we relate to the world or how we envision our connection to other beings. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is just so fascinating about, uh, Lovecraft and I, I, you see these ported. So I, I mentioned Bloodborne and Darkest Dungeon, um, and those mechanics have a legacy, which is interesting. Like in Bloodborne, it's known as frenzy. Um, so like there are certain creatures that you can come up to. One of them is this really creepy fucking, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> this creepy, if it wasn't going to be you, it was going to be me. So. <laughs> <laughs> this creepy like brain lady thing that sings to you. That's all she does. She sings and it slowly, but sometimes you don't even know. You just hear the singing and you see this frenzy meter start to go up and it, it has this like, uh, uh, kind of a spiral to it. Right. And then if it gets all the way to the top, it like your brain explodes or something. And like it, you take a lot of damage, but it's basically like that. Right. And then darkest dungeon, I was remember it reminded of that too, where it's very much like a meter. And then at some point it's like, Oh my gosh, he's a suddenly a kleptomaniac. He's a kleptomaniac. Right. Um, so there's that part, but I think it's, it is this question of like, when you're thinking about how do we represent, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the game that Christian wants to bring up later. Uh, uh, Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, in which this whole question of, like, mental illness takes on a very different character, where it's not this question of, like, this is, like, you know, taking points away from you and, you know, uh, hurting you necessarily. It's about a different way of relating to one's environment and a different way of understanding the world around you. Um, whether that's, you know, causes suffering, it can, like, um, so I have anxiety disorder, you know, and my way of relating to the world frequently is I think the world is out to get me, you know, when I'm in those, in those spaces. Um, but I wouldn't think of it as a hit point system. And so it's just interesting to see that legacy of Lovecraft sort of written into the mechanics of a lot of games. <laughs> Although there is also a way of thinking about, um, something like depression, for example, where there's a common explanation that at least, I don't know, maybe maybe it's helpful for people who don't have depression to sort of figure out what it's like, because I don't know how closely it necessarily describes my experience, but like 
um, the the metaphor that basically you do have when you're when you're dealing with depression, you do have an expendable amount of resources, and there's kind of only so much you can give before you're just out, like you just before you just don't have more, um, and that's not a hit point system, but it is quantified like it is quantifiable and and it's different for different people but i am i couldn't tell you like number to number what the limit is but i sure know what i'm about to get there right <laughs> like i sure know what i'm about at the point where where we have run out of uh of um yeah it's not hit points but it is almost more like fuel right or or, or or gas or something that that can be regenerated and so sometimes I really like even though they can you know be be silly and and messed up but I like games that have mechanics that allow for healing of these kinds of things because you know it's a fantasy for me anyway it's it's a fantasy but it's one that i like and it's one that i can indulge in in a game when i frankly can't indulge in it in the real world you know um or in what we're used to calling the real world uh i like that sometimes and and also i would say that the way that um the way that darkest dungeon handles it is probably especially cartoonish it's just like you could go to the like uh, go to the um tavern and and play dice and now you, you won't can, be yeah <laughs> like you can and, whip yourself in the in the yeah in yeah the that was an especially egregious one i remember <laughs> that i was like come on but then i yeah. mean there's also like to what degree is that are the various aspects of that game just kind of like edgelord like bullshit i don't know but um there, there there is though sometimes um i guess what i'm saying is i am neither defending nor totally decrying games that have mechanics like this for me my experience of them is sometimes they suck and sometimes you get these little moments where you get to say like man you know that's not how it works but i like the idea of uh of a short rest that restores my energy you know and and these and these kinds of things so um i don't i don't know if that's helpful because it's so equivocal <laughs> but that's kind of where where my mind's at on that kind of stuff yeah i think it's it's interesting and you'd mentioned like i mean you you know you talked about like healing and stuff which is kind of um i mean that the idea of that i guess in, at least especially in tabletop games um when done well you know these these sorts of mechanics could provide provide fodder for role playing opportunities right and and i think you know it's it's not just like oh you roll on a table oh now you're you know now you're depressed it's like okay you you've experienced this good deal of trauma you know you you may now have to like retire your character for a while like you may need to go sit the, you know you're in a you're in a uh actually delta green is a fantastic example of this they 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 still call it sanity but but it's is very much trauma you know um trauma response and you know if you're in like a, a gun battle and you shoot someone in the head like that is a traumatic event and you immediately like lose that points from that bucket 
um, you know, or, or, you know, that mental capacity. And like, yeah, you may, you may be out the rest of the fight because like you just did something awful. You know, it doesn't matter if they're bad guys. Like you just did something that like is truly terrible, <laughs> um, you know, and surprising. And so I, there's a, there's a, and, and it's a, it's, I, and I feel like the role-playing opportunities there are, are very interesting, especially if your group is, is kind of into that sort of thing. You know, um, there's, there's obviously more just hack and slash like groups out there, but you know, that this probably isn't quite. So. I mean, I think that one of the tricky things about representing mental illness in games in particular is that it's difficult to replicate the timeline of mental illness, which so often is weird and belated after the fact, like, you know, I don't know when I started being clinically depressed. Maybe it was when I was 14. Maybe it was when I was 20. Maybe it was when I was 26. Uh, I can't quite pin it down. Uh, and the temporality of just like living with it is also weird, right? Sometimes I go into it and I don't realize it. Sometimes I go out and I don't realize that. And sometimes something triggers it in a way that I wouldn't have expected and sometimes it doesn't. And there's a way in which, of course, the variables have to get limited down when you're playing a game, tabletop or digital game. And there's a kind of discrete amount of time that you're going to be involved in the experience. And so there has to be this kind of encapsulation or a set of shortcuts or some kind of shorthand for it. And, you know, in shorthand for healing to it or recovering from it um, because you want to be able to recover in a game. And I suppose I wonder, I would love to see games in which you don't recover in a way, right? There are those games. So like Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, if I'm remembering the ending correctly, offers something like recovery, this kind of action role-playing game, but not fully and not really. Um, tabletop games, I think, offer a space if your GM or your DM is daring enough to like really let you sort of live with your consequences uh, if you're not constantly re-rolling characters or something. Uh, but it, it, that is a difficult question because you also want a game to be enjoyable and you want a game not even just to be enjoyable, but to have a discrete distinct however you want to put it narrative arc dramatic arc that is often not how we experience mental illness you know and i've seen mental illness a lot of my family and in my own life and i have you know an uncle who is schizophrenic i have other relatives who grapple with bipolar disorder uh I grapple with my own stuff and it's just you know the way in which it exhibits itself it's not easily accessible and it's not easy to put into a sequence, I guess. And that makes it very tricky to design around, to design mechanics around. And so we have to get sanity meters, right? Or we have to evoke something to pin it down and give us a metric for progress or something. Just that, yeah, it's the time scale. It's, it's a really, it, like, it's a really good point. And it's really kind of interesting to think about because it is, you know, Tabletop role playing and, and video games both tend to be fairly compact timelines, and so yeah, it's um, it's. I mean, if you're if you're truly getting simulationist about it, then it's a year. You know, it's multiple years of of you know 
character development and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Right. The map becomes a territory at a certain point, right? Like if you're actually going to simulate what it's like to grapple with mental illness or mental health issues in any like way that's completely adequate, you're actually just going to replicate the experience. And then all of a sudden you have to just assume that it's not even a representation anymore. You're actually just transporting somebody there, which is A, just not going to happen, or B, is going to be Michael Douglas in the movie The Game, um, you, which is a whole different story. Do you feel story. like, I mean, I'm thinking, um, aren't there, like, I'm thinking of, like, mental illness in novels or mental illness in film. Aren't there, are there, are there other media that do this in a better way, even when dealing with these kinds of uh, discrete time, time temporalities? Well, I mean, interestingly, this is one of the areas I just want to say where the fact that games are an interactive media becomes potentially a kind of pitfall because insofar as you're identifying with an avatar or playing a character, that assumption of some kind of identification, which is rather, I mean, even when you identify with a character in a novel, even a first-person novel or a character in a film, there's still that, like, critical distance that's minimal at least and i'm sure there are exceptions avant-garde exceptions and stuff but like you know games ask you to play this avatar in a certain way sometimes they let you even design that avatar and so i wonder if that's not also just part of the problem i mean i i could imagine a world where someone creates like a, a vr game where it simulates you know the the symptoms of schizophrenia for example which raises some potentially some ethical concerns about that and what you would, you know, potentially do to people. But like, you know, I mean, full on, like you could, you could literally immerse someone in what that experience was like. And that, I mean, unfortunately I, I have a feeling uh, it's probably only a matter of time before someone actually does that if they haven't already. So. Well, I'm having flashbacks to the recent Westworld season three where um, it's not it's not about simulating uh, mental illness, but one of the characters is um, he's he's definitely hallucinating um, and he's taken to an asylum of sorts and given VR treatment and where he has to like um, like he has this counseling session with all of his prior selves. And it's a little ridiculous, but um, the, the whole idea of like you know, using VR as a way, and, and also in that season, they actually do use VR to erase memories, like to, to, um, you know, and particularly around trauma around one of those characters. So yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's a really good question, Roger. I mean, I'm thinking about a movie like Hereditary, which essentially follows that descent into madness trope, right? Like I'm going to keep seeing so many horrible things until I have a kind of psychological reaction to it, which I think we kind of already agreed is, is, is a little ridiculous and isn't really how mental health works, but hereditary, a film like hereditary, I think is a little bit more effective than a game in displaying how the various characters in the movie are bringing things from outside of the story into it with them already, which makes that arc a lot stronger. I mean, in, in, in my opinion, makes it, makes it really strong. I mean, makes it a really 
really cool movie for me for thinking about how this kind of stuff works. And I want to I, I want to be clear and clarify something I said a little bit earlier. Like the rhetoric of of healing related to mental health is is fraught. Like has its problems. That's not sort of there isn't like a be all end all kind of solution, but I'm thinking there are things that games offer that other media don't. And in the case of a tabletop game, a friend can walk up to me and say, like, I heal you. I'm here and and I'm 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 picking up your battle scarred body and I'm healing you. And that to me is this sense not of like this kind of like, oh, like you fixed it. You don't have a, a mental illness anymore. But more of those moments when you're in that trough. Right. And then someone comes along who's willing to sort of be there in the trough with you in in what we're used to calling reality. Right. That there's a really nice comparison, like Christian suggested, kind of depending on depending on the DM and depending on who's playing. Right. But but that and who you're playing with, that it can be this very blase like blip, like, oh, you drank the healing potion. Now you got hit points back. But depending on how you do it and, and how you choose to sort of play out the theater of the mind, it can be this moment that is very strongly reminiscent of um, of real world catharsis you know after after particularly emotionally moving pathfinder session a couple weeks ago i didn't have nightmares for two days and that was amazing that was so great and they came back because they do but like i didn't for a little for for a little bit and dnd you know isn't your therapeutic solution to every single problem you're ever gonna have but it's a better one than you might think is is i guess maybe what i'm what i'm trying to offer uh well i guess that story it's so funny that you brought that up because like i mean i don't know if there are rpgs that specifically do this but there's so many analogs between what you're doing in a role-playing game and what you're doing in talk talk therapy um, in terms of in terms of taking on specific stories, trying out, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about the whole process of transference itself, like this whole idea that like you're playing out these situations in a safe space where you don't have to be involved personally with the people that you're talking to, right? And so um, I don't know. It's just I, I wonder. It makes me wonder if there are like you know, psychologists who have, I mean, I think there are psychologists who have talked about therapy, use of D&D and therapy and stuff like that. There's actually a charity here in the Seattle <clears throat> area that, um, that uses Dungeons and Dragons as therapy for like uh, teenagers. Mm. Um, I'd have to, I, I, I apologize. I don't know what it's called off the top of my head, um, but I can look that up and provide a link after the podcast. So That's yeah, it's cool. I mean, because it's it, it's very true though, because it gives you the opportunity to interact, at, you know, to be a, a character you couldn't normally be and interact with other characters, you know, in a in a setting that you know gives you those kind of gives you those chances to. I mean, it is yeah, it is very therapeutic, or at least it can be, you know. I mean. I was going to say hack and slash isn't therapeutic, but that, well, you know, that's actually its own form of therapy too, I suppose. Or it could be, so. <laughs> I mean, I feel like one of the things I don't want to 
call this a conclusion, but we should start wrapping up. Uh, one of the things I think we're hitting on is that, one, I think that games probably deal with mental health and mental illness the worst when they try to make a character embody a mental illness, right? When they try to say this character is disorder X, Y, or Z, right? That's when they often get into trouble. They're more interesting when they maybe make some kind of mental health issue part of a character. Uh, but even more so, I wonder if they're more interesting when they're less representational, less trying to like capture the experience and more either trying to give you an insight into some aspect of it, uh, you know, while admitting that that's not what it's actually like, that this is just kind of gesturing in that direction. It's not the thing itself. Uh, I think of, for example, the game Celeste, which has this wonderful mechanic that replicates the kind of self-doubt involved with certain forms of depression by having your avatar be chased by a shadow version of yourself. And so that platforming turns into like, not just platforming, but being chased by a you know, second version of your avatar, um, which, you know, that's not the experience of depression, but it gestures towards some aspect of that experience. And so it's almost as if I think it's maybe most interesting when it's the most allegorical. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but when it's most willing to let you, to acknowledge that this isn't the thing, but we need to think about this thing. Maybe we don't have the tools, maybe we don't have the means, but this gives us a space, like I think Nate was getting at, to talk through things, to think through things, to play through things, um, to fantasize sometimes about what it would be like not to suffer from X, Y, or Z, um, not to have anxiety be just like a constant experience, uh, and that that's okay as long as we don't, you know, confuse that with a very simple to read meter or something. Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. All right. We should call it, and I think maybe skip our non-game recommendations uh, yeah. this time hey, around. I'm not going to complain. <laughs> I'm not going to complain for, about S- Some that. of us are already existing at 1130 with young children um, promising to ruin the rest of our s- sleep. Uh, some of us also have Cobra Kai to watch. <laughs> oh, yes. that's what's going oh, on. There you go. That is there what's going go. on. Yeah, now yeah. we know. I have Cobra Kai and a ten-year Lafroy that my partner lovingly purchased from the liquor store. Your so. your uh, romance with uh, Johnny continues, right? Like, oh, Johnny Lawrence. Oh, yeah.